Good morning, I'm Kate Baker, and I am grateful to read for you our scripture this morning from Luke chapter 15, verses three through 10. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose someone among you had 100 sheep and lost one of them. Wouldn't he leave the other 99 in the pasture and search for the lost one until he finds it? And when he finds it, he is thrilled and places it on his shoulders. When he arrives home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, celebrate with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes both heart and life than over 99 righteous people who have no need to change their hearts and lives. Hear now our second parable. Or what woman, if she owns 10 silver coins and loses one of them, won't light a lamp and sweep the house, searching her home carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, celebrate with me because I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who changes both heart and life. We are thankful for the gift of scripture. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I admit to you that the first few years that I was a pastor right out of seminary, I did not want to preach on the parables. Every time one came up in the suggested text for the week and the lectionary, as we call it, I would see what my other options were. The parables of Jesus can be intimidating at times, hard to understand and challenging. But the more that I have read them, and while I do not have a better grip on them necessarily than I did before, but the more I read them, the more I've come to appreciate the challenges that they bring to us. The mystery of the parables is that they are over 2,000 years old, yet they have the power to speak to us today just as well as they spoke to the first people who would have heard them. Professor Amy Jill Levine is a Jewish New Testament and Jewish Studies scholar at Vanderbilt Divinity School. And she encourages readers in her book, Short Stories of Jesus. She encourages them to remember that the first people to hear the parables of Jesus were, in fact, first century Jews. They lived their everyday lives, doing their jobs, tending to their families, and living off the land. So Jesus uses simple, everyday things to make his parables come to life in ways that they could relate. In simple terms, a parable is a simple story with an underlying lesson. But really, parables are so much more than that. But before we get into what a parable is, we must realize what parables are not. So parables are not allegories. Allegories are texts that require a decoder ring to understand. They are stories where each element is a symbol for something else. Anyone remember reading Animal Farm in school? Anybody here? And Yes, a few of you. Yeah, I remember reading that story, and we learned when we learned that story that this is an allegory an allegorical story where farm animals 
actually represent a cautionary tale about Russian communism, right? So a parable, though, does not operate like that, not like an allegory. And parables are not simply platitudes or moral statements either. They're meant to have us look closer at what is beneath their initial first hearing. So parables are not allegories or moral statements. What are they? And what do we do with them? Parables are short stories meant to challenge, entertain, and to encourage our imaginations. They are an art form meant for further discussion and interpretation. They are, at the end of the day, stories, simple ones that are meant to challenge and provoke. Sometimes a story is just a story, and that story itself can be profound and challenging in its own way. So the people who first gathered around to hear Jesus' parables would have heard them as such, simple stories meant to uncover deeper meanings. They are not necessarily designed to teach something new, but to remind us of perhaps those deep-seated truths buried within ourselves that at times we would rather not have uncovered. So upon reading and hearing the parables, our reaction should be perhaps well, that makes me a little uncomfortable. Or that story takes me out of my comfort zone. Perhaps this is a story I need to hear again. This is why over the next few weeks, Pastor Jerry, Pastor Matt, and myself will be exploring the parables of Jesus together with you as we begin a new year. Perhaps you have been in church your whole life and you have heard all the parables many times and you have explored their meanings. Or maybe you know a little bit about them. Or you may find them confusing or are tempted to skip over them just like I was. Or maybe you are tuning in for the very first time today and are hearing about the parables of Jesus for the first time. However familiar you are with the parables, we invite you over the next few weeks to strip away any previous interpretations you might have heard, although many are valid and good, but to open your ears and your heart to new ways of seeing these old stories. We will do this by asking ourselves how we might hear the parables through the ears of those who first heard them, those first century Jewish listeners, and then asking how we might translate them for our lives and our world today. So three things are important for us to fully understand these short stories of Jesus. One, we have to understand what is going on at the time when Jesus told them. Looking within the text and finding out who the audience was, where they were, what he's looking at to use those images that we see. And two, we have to see what is going on in the rest of the gospel where we find the parable. So perhaps Matthew and Luke might have a different interpretation or different images that they use. What else is going on there? And three, how will we understand the parable in our own lives in the world today? And that will differ based on our personal experiences and what's happening in the world, of course. So with all that in mind, let's take a look at the parables found in the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel that you heard a little bit ago. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son is the final parable in Luke 15. Many of us have heard one interpretation of the parable of the lost sheep that goes like this. 
The sheep symbolizes a believer who wanders away from the flock or God or the faith community. Jesus is then the shepherd who goes to find it and bring it back. And once it's found, there's much rejoicing within the faith community. It's a message that we like, and we are used to hearing when this comes up. Perhaps you've heard this message preached many times, and it's a good one. However, this is probably not the way that the first listeners of this parable would have heard it. Imagine for a moment that in this story, sheep are just sheep. And the sheep owner was a man who became frantic after losing one of his sheep. We don't start the story as one about God losing a person who has sinned. We begin with what is right in front of us, sheep and people who own them. If we think about this, this person owns 100 sheep. That means they are probably pretty wealthy for the day. We are not even necessarily talking about a shepherd. Our mind jumps to that, but we're not talking necessarily about that. If Jesus meant a shepherd, he probably would have chosen that word to get his point across. He's not afraid to use that word, shepherd. In this case, the story tells us this is a person who owned sheep. Sheep are sheep. I don't have a lot of experience with farm animals. Perhaps some of you do. But sheep are not the smartest animals in the bunch. A sheep doesn't intentionally wander off and thinks, I'm going to get lost, I'm going to walk away. A sheep doesn't get lost all on its own. A sheep doesn't know sin. So what's really going on here? The sheep owner lost a sheep. And the only way he knows his one sheep is missing is because he counted them. Or what about what we know to be the parable of the lost coin. We could begin with the coin as a nice chunk of change. At the time, this would have been a significant amount of money. And this has been earned by the frantic woman who has lost it. We can easily identify with her, right? We have all lost something and we're frantically trying to find it. A few months before I moved here to Noblesville, I lost the small remote used to operate my Amazon Fire Stick. If you own one of those, they're really small. My son and I had gone over to our previous church really fast to lock a door that somebody had left unlocked, and I had thrown the remote, I thought, onto the counter next to the door, or so I thought, before we left. We were literally gone for 60 seconds, and when we returned, it was nowhere to be found. I searched the entire house for it. I tore apart the couch. I even looked inside moving boxes that were piled around that I hadn't closed yet, thinking it may have fallen down in one of them. I searched for several days, and I never found it. I was so frustrated because some of my much-needed peaceful packing time was due to the fact that my son liked these particular shows that only were operated by that stupid remote. I needed it. I finally had to order another one. <laughs> I spent money I didn't really want to spend on this remote. But I didn't see that original remote again until moving day, when one of the movers found it while taking our couch apart. <laughs> Talk about much rejoicing at that point. So as in the previous parable, this woman finds that her coin collection is incomplete and that she's missing one. So she begins her frantic search 
And when she finds it, she says, celebrate with me because I have found the coin that I had lost. In this case, at least she's taking responsibility for losing it. The story begs the question, we celebrate finding what we have lost, but do we take responsibility for losing it in the first place? I can tell you that I was rather hard on myself for losing that remote that day. It was totally my fault. So Luke adds his own interpretation to these two parables. He says, maybe in hindsight, after, after trying to figure out what he meant to say, he says, just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Neither the sheep or the coin acted on their own, but Luke adds the assumption that perhaps they represent people who have sinned and have experienced a change of heart. The sheep and the coin did not sin, and they don't have a need to repent. They're sheep and a coin. Neither the sheep owner or the woman forgive what they have lost. So something else must be going on for us to really get the point of these stories. But we still must consider the final parable of Luke 15, the lost son, or as many of us know to be the prodigal son. Each of these parables in this chapter are found to have the same outline. Something is lost. Something needs to be found. There is a search, and the lost item is found, and there is much celebration. But this third parable offers a different challenge, that it ends with the older son and the father out in the field talking. It doesn't give us much resolution. So here are the basics of the prodigal son, the lost son. A man has two sons. The younger one leaves and goes far away and spends all of his inheritance and makes choices that are not ideal. He returns home. There is a big party thrown in his honor. The older son is working out in the fields, unaware of the celebration until he comes upon it himself. He had to ask a servant what was happening. The older son had been left out of the celebration. The father had forgotten to include him in the life of the party. It's no wonder he gets upset. Wouldn't you? I would. And as in our lives today, this parable deals with real parents and real children and addresses the difficulty we have in forming and maintaining the family bond. In this final parable, Jesus goes a different way with the outline, a surprising and somewhat confusing ending, if you will, a shocking ending. The first listeners of this parable would have been familiar with the storyline beginning, there was a man who had two sons. This is part of the Jewish narrative, right? Think of Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Ishmael and Isaac. Each of these ancient stories, the younger son is shown to have the trouble. Well, he, no, the younger son was the preferred one. He was the favorite he was the one doing the right things. These pairs had lived a family life with strife and tension. Yet in the end, there was reconciliation between the two sons. Cain, after killing his brother Abel, was still part of the human family, even though under difficult circumstances. 
Esau, who had his inheritance stolen by Jacob, eventually reconciled with his brother. Ishmael, who was exiled into the wilderness, returned to bury his father Abraham with his brother Isaac. Yet here we see in this parable that it's the younger son who's making all the trouble, and the older one is seeing to his duties and his responsibility in the family. Yet he is written out of the narrative for a time. There was a man who had two sons, and he forgot to count. This is what the first hearers of the story would have heard and seen, an angry older brother whose father forgot to invite him to the party. So often we like to focus on that younger son as the one who had been lost, and in many ways he was. However, at second glance, we see that it's the older brother who becomes the object of the father's search in line with the rest of the parables. And then his attempt to remind him that he is beloved and part of the family. We don't really know what happens after that. Does the older son join in the celebration? Is there further conversation about family and family values? We don't know. What we do know is that this parable offers a challenge about families. In this case, when we see that we indulge or spoil someone, we don't buy their love. But when we withhold our indulgences, we can still stifle love. A fresh look at each of these profound short stories tell us that maybe it's really about counting. The sheep owner counted and found that he was missing a sheep. The woman counted her coin collection and realized that one was missing. A man had two sons, and he forgot to count. So who are we not counting? Who in our families have we perhaps written out? Do we count? Do we make sure that everyone in our communities feels counted? In a world of constant distraction, division, noise, violence, media, social media, all of that, it's becoming easy to forget to look around, to count, and see who may be missing. There was a study captured on video several years ago in London about how people respond to children who appear to be missing. We're going to take a look at that. A little girl sits on her own, sucking her thumb in the middle of a busy shopping center, looking scared and alone. So would you stop to see if she's okay? Well, more than 600 people didn't. As part of a TV experiment, two little girls were left alone on a London street to test the public's reaction to lost children. In the space of an hour, only one person stopped to see if the child needed help, while 616 walked on by. Seven-year-old Uma was taken to Victoria Place shopping centre next to Victoria Station and left on her own, but with tight security around her. Right, I've got a whole cluster of people. It's so hard to watch people just walk by and ignore her. 
Her five-year-old sister, Maya, also takes part in the experiment, and at one stage, a couple find her in their path and simply walk either side without stopping. Their mother, who watched from a short distance away, says it was shocking and heartbreaking to watch so many people ignore her children when they were clearly alone and vulnerable. The experiment has highlighted the fact that many people now feel too scared of other people's perceptions to stop to help a young person. But the NSPCC says an adult's responsibility to protect a child should supersede these concerns. Little Girl Lost, a Police 5 special, airs on Tuesday the 25th of March at 6.30pm on Channel 5. <laughs> Most people were too concerned with their perception of what was happening to stop and see if they were okay. Or a lot of people were on their devices, right? A lot of people just were very distracted and not taking a look at what was happening. So how do we make sure that no one is missing? How do we make sure that everyone is counted? That everyone is seen, valued, and honored? And not just as a number, either. Professor Amy Jo Levine shares her experience with leading a Bible study with a group of women at a maximum security prison in Nashville, Tennessee. As she was teaching this similar lesson about counting and being counted, one of the inmates said, but we are assigned numbers and counted six times every day. The challenge was then that we are reminded that we don't just count people for the space they take up. We count their worth and their value. As we look around our communities, our churches, our schools, our neighborhoods, who is missing? Who are we forgetting to count? Is it the person who has a different color of skin than we do? Is it the person with a disability? Is it someone who makes less money than we do? Has less education? Is it someone who's a different sexual orientation? Is it the person who has been incarcerated? Or the children in our schools who need more help? The child being bullied? senior citizens, the drug addict, is it you? For whom are we searching and who needs to be counted? I admit that sometimes searching is hard work, especially when something of value has been lost. In these parables, searching for sheep, coins, or, of course, people is work. But in the searching we also rejoice in the finding, the welcoming home. We rejoice in the potential to bring ourselves back to wholeness in the process. And for this, we say, thanks be to God. Amen.